Hey everybody, it's that time of year again. If you're looking for some new gear or you've been listening to the show for some time and would like to give back, I've launched a brand new spring apparel store for the MyFit Podcast. Our new brand colors for this year are mint green and black, and the store has t-shirts, men's tanks, women's tanks, and crop tops in a plethora of sizes with that color scheme. As most of you know, podcasting has become a burning passion of mine over the past three years, and I've had an absolute blast producing insightful conversations with some of the highest achievers in the world on a weekly basis, and I'm so excited for what the future looks like for the MyFit Podcast. If you'd like to give back to the show, hit the link in my bio on Instagram and purchase a shirt in my online store. The store will close at the end of April, so make sure to get on there soon. Thank you all for your continued support for the past three years. I am forever grateful. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hilliard. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to the MyFit Podcast. Over the past three or so years that I've been doing this, I get a lot of questions of, DJ, what's your favorite podcast? Which one did you enjoy the most? Or for new listeners, hey, DJ, which one should I start with first? And of course, a lot of that's going to come back to me asking questions of what type of content do you enjoy learning about and what are you really interested in? However, one podcast that I reference a lot and one that I really look back to and resonate with quite often and is one of my favorites is my conversation with Dr. Jim Blair. For those of you guys that weren't listening last year, missed the episode um, or are new, Dr. Jim is a world-renowned performance psychologist and author of 17 books, including his most recent book, Leading with Character, which also comes with the Personal Credo Journal, a companion to Leading with Character. He also co-authored the national best-selling book, The Power of Full Engagement. From his more than 30 years of experience in applied research, Dr. Lair believes the single most important factor in successful achievement, personal fulfillment, and life satisfaction is the strength of one's character. He strongly contends that character strength can be built in the same way that muscle strength is built, through energy investment. Dr. Lair has worked with hundreds of world-class performers from the arenas of sport, business, medicine, law enforcement, including Fortune 100 executives, FBI hostage rescue teams, and military special forces. In our conversation, we take a deep dive into self-development, aligning your inner and outer voice, and ultimately becoming the person that you want to be. I talked to Jim. We recorded the show last July. And since then, some of the ideas and concepts, I can't get out of my head. And I absolutely love them. And I talk about them often uh, with my clients and with other people that come on the show. And some of those topics were... First, the biggest one, what does it mean to repurpose sport to build character? This is such a big topic and something I resonate with so much. Uh, Building character comes first and the athletics and the accolades come second. After that, we talked about the X's and O's of character development, 
And we talked about one of my favorite quotes that I have been referencing a lot since talking to Dr. Jim, and it's, quote, who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. Powerful words. After that, we talked about identifying your hidden scorecard. We talked about creating intention and purpose to what you are doing, both two words I love to use. Then we talked about the impact of the story that we tell ourselves. And finally, at the end, we talked about the impact of journaling and creating a personal credo. Like I said, this is one of my favorite conversations, and I highly recommend you guys grab a pen and paper because there are so many nuggets in there, whether you are an athlete, uh, an aspiring athlete, somebody that just enjoys the gym, or a parent that's raising a kid that is in athletics. There is a lot of material in here for you, and I think you'll enjoy this throwback episode, whether you listen to it back in July or you are a new listener. So without further ado, let's get to one of my favorite conversations of all time with none other than world-renowned psychologist, Dr. Jim Lair. Let's go. Dr. Jim Lair, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. I'm very excited to learn from you today. You're somebody that I have read a lot of your books, listened to a lot of your interviews and podcasts, and I just really resonate with the, the information, the content that you put out there. So it's a joy to have you on the show today. Thank you, DJ. I'm uh, very uh, excited about uh, the time we can spend together, and I'm hoping uh, that we uh, resonate on many different levels with your audience. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was first introduced to you uh, through Brett Ledbetter through What Drives Winning, and I had him on the show a couple months ago, and we talked all about what creates and what makes a winning environment. And Throughout the show, Dr. Jim, he kept bringing you up and referencing you as a mentor and somebody that he's really learned a lot from. And then one of the last questions I asked him was, what was the number one thing that Dr. Jim taught you uh, that, that you'll take with you um, when you're writing books and going on the road and doing seminars? He said the number one most valuable thing he taught me was repurposing sport to build character. I know we're just diving right into a big topic here, but can you tell us and teach us, because it was obviously a really big hitter for him, why is it so important to repurpose sport to build character? You know, it's a, it really is um, something that has evolved over the course of my career. I've been involved in competitive athletics uh, and this whole notion of winning, um, and I've written a lot about all this uh, Really, uh, it's really profoundly um, important uh, to an individual as they are striving to make big things happen in their life competitively. And um, but I've also worked a lot with youth, um, a lot of young folks, and tried to understand, you know, where does sport fit in their lives? And because I've lived a pretty long time. I begin to see patterns that emerge from those who were obsessed with just the achievement itself and not really concerned with, with how they got there and who they became as a consequence of the chase. And I began to realize that we're all chasing something. In fact, we were designed as a species to chase. Um, and we had to do that to survive. We might ch chase food or just survival or chase anything that captures our spirit in a sense. And as man evolved, it became money, it became trophies, it became 
um, all these extrinsic markers of success in, in, in people's lives. And so every time you chase something, it's changing the way in which you uh, adapt to the world. You're adapting constantly. And I see a lot of folks who've become extraordinarily successful in their chase to the top of the mountain uh, in sport. And they're not that fulfilled. In fact, they had to kind of climb over dead bodies to get to the top. Their obsession became um, almost the, the, the biggest part of their life. Um, they had to do this and they felt like maybe they were born to do this. And yet when they summited and they really had the world, I worked with 17 number ones in the world. And when they had this extraordinary accomplishment, after about two or three weeks, it felt like it was pretty empty and they had to do it again. They wanted another gold medal or they wanted another number one ranking or another few weeks or whatever. And it began, I began to realize that there's something else going on. I call it the hidden scorecard, um, that we have this extrinsic marker of success that, um, you know, is, can be almost uh, overpowering at times, but we fail to recognize who we are becoming as human beings in that chase. And what I spent a lot of time with Brett doing was trying to you know, uh, give some of the insights that I have and continue to get that, you know, the most important part of the chase is that you become a person that you're very proud of at the end of your life, that you become a person of great character, of great um, honesty and integrity and uh, kindness, and that you really like who you are as a consequence of what you've done. Mm -hmm. And then if you actually summit and you are a person of great character, which is that hidden scorecard, then it's a double win. But if you get to the top and you haven't really tended to that scorecard, to that, that scorecard that defines your connection to other people, if you haven't really done well on that scorecard, I don't care how many times you've summited to the top, there's something very empty that will always haunt you. So my work with Brett, he's a very, very, he's a very good person, very good thinker. He's always learning. He always wants to get better at what he does. And I think when uh, I introduced him to these ideas, I think he really began to recognize that that's really what his calling was, was to use basketball very much the way John Wooden did mm -hmm. to help become extraordinary human beings. And then we found at the Human Performance Institute, which I co-founded with Dr. Jack Grapple, we found that actually character is what sustains you at the top, mm -hmm. that you actually can perform better over the long haul, if you're very secure in who you've become and you like who you've become in the chase. So sports repurposed to build character for me is a huge idea 
And I only wish I'd come to it earlier in my career. Yeah, it's a massive idea. There's so much to unpack there. And I, I really resonate with it too, because to me, it talks about slowing down for people. We we'll, we'll get to the journaling idea, but it's just the idea of not becoming obsessed with your sport. And you're talking about some of the highest performers in the world that their paycheck depends on perhaps right. their their success. How do you talk or how, how do the conversations go with people who maybe have more on the line than just a weekend tournament? You know, it's another great, it's another great question. Um, you know, when, when, when people begin to recognize what can happen to them as a consequence of this extraordinary privilege they have of being at the top of the world in, in their sport. They fall in love with all the trappings. They love the jet setting. They love all the privileges they love. Um, but if in that process, they really haven't really tended to the things that actually make people happy, that actually give them a sense of fulfillment, they're probably going to, you know, kind of go off in many different directions that may, they may end up undermining all the success that they had. They may end up um, really regretting tragically how they neglected so many things that were so important with their families, um, with their character. And now they're in some serious trouble in ways they never thought they would get. And what we try to do at the Institute was build the case that you're going to uh, be your, the only way to win is to win with character. And the only way to lose is to lose with character. But if you really got it, you'll feel more secure and you'll sustain whatever level of performance that you're capable of for a much longer period of time. So the payoff is much greater in the long haul than just turning on an obsession and charging forward and not paying any attention at all to how you got there and how you treated people on the way up and all these issues of kindness and compassion, gratitude, love, caring, humility, um, gratefulness. These are all assets that I believe have no, have no equal in human beings. The greatest insight that I had in my career is that the single most important part of who we are as human beings is how we treat other people. That's how, that's how we score in the ultimate sense. And that's we're relational human beings. And um, it comes from our ancestors. I know it's coded in our genes that those who were cast out and just did their own thing didn't survive. Those who cared for their their uh, fellow, whether they be tribal members or villagers or whatever, those are the ones that survived. And those are the ones that we are now, those are part of our history. Who we, who we were is who we are. And we absolutely have a scorecard that connects us to our treatment of others. And if we're not honest, if we're not trustworthy, if we don't have integrity, if all we want to do is win and we're going to win no matter what, and we'll do whatever is necessary, you might get there, but the cost can really never be fully justified internally or externally.
And not to mention too, Dr. Jim, you, I mean, you've worked with people of the highest level and we know that that's just a flash in the pan. A lot of the times when you're at the top and most recognizable, uh, that's a very short stint of your life. Most right. of your time, it's you know, most of your life is spent during retirement, obviously, and other, uh, the grow up parts of, of your life. And so to me, I really resonate with this idea that character, and I learned it from Brett as well. Character is what gets you the results. And our, our gym has kind of got, gotten behind this idea. We have a poster at our gym that says, as, uh, better people make better athletes. And it's just this idea of in order to be a great athlete, you got to be a great person, great guy, great girl. That, that needs to be the foundation. I absolutely love that. That is a brilliant way to frame it. It's completely consistent with what we've learned. And we had quite a living laboratory to distill a lot of these understandings. And as a psychologist, performance psychologist, nothing in my training led me there. I'm a data guy, and we had over, to date, probably 400,000 people go through the Institute, and wow. we collected so much data, and it was the data that brought us, I, I never thought I would end up in the character space <laughs> as a psychologist. I mean, yeah. that's like, how did I end up here? <laughs> and and uh, so I end up saying, I end up here by accident. I, I had no idea that's where it was going to lead me, but I just followed the data, and and then I look around at this time in my life at the people who've kind of paid attention to that scorecard, to the internal scorecard, and, and those that haven't, and look at what happened, what's happened to their lives, their families, even their financial well-being. But their well-being has suffered enormously, even though they had great success um, and made a lot of money and were very famous. Something, um, something in that formula actually did not give them ultimately what they want. So we spent a lot of time asking people to go to the end of their life and how they want to be remembered when it's all said and done. After they've climbed the mountain, after they've done, what do they want on their tombstone? What, who are they when they are most proud of themselves? And those questions repeatedly over and over brought us back to their connection to other people. Hmm. They don't want all these achievements, gold medals to be listed on their, gra on their gravestone. They, they, what they want is here was a person that was a loving and caring mother or father that really was an inspiration to others, helped others, never turned others away, was, was filled with integrity and honesty and always gave their best, was positive, and um, whenever they had the opportunity, took their resources and helped others mm -hmm. and stepped up and is an unforgettable kind of hero to others um, who were around them. Those kinds of things showed up over and over and over again. And, after, and so then you go back, and I think it's really important for you if you want to know, you know, how to get somewhere, you got to know where it is you want to go. And so at the, you go to your end, and if this is where you want to end up, you had better put the work in, not just on summoning, but who you're becoming as a consequence of all the stresses and how you're treating everybody on the way up, whether it be linesmen in tennis, referees in soccer, or valet attendants or colleagues and family, every single moment you're alive, 
uh, you're having some kind of impact and you are creating a legacy of some kind. And that's what um, I'm trying to do. And I think Brad is really doing a fabulous job of making that impact through the sport of basketball. Yeah, you're doing a fantastic job, by the way. Not that you need <laughs> any more reassurance, but with the stuff you're putting out is is fantastic. And I, I'm curious from a visual standpoint, Dr. Jim, what, what do you think a person of high character looks like? What are some traits? What are some visual things? For me, I'm thinking of somebody that just hit adversity. Maybe they just, you know, I know you're involved with tennis. Maybe they just had a fault or a bad game or something bad happens. To me, that's when we see character the most because to me, that's probably the easiest to slip on character. What would you say are some of the biggest character traits that you like to see from your highest level performers? Are there some visual things you like to see? Well, first of all, um, no one knows their character mm. until it's tested. Okay. So it's just like, you don't know the strength of your bicep until you put it under stress and you can see how much you can lift. Mm. So I, I like to think of the assets that we have in character as muscles. I learned early in my career, and I think you'll appreciate it, that the same way you build physical muscle, fitness, and the physical body, you build in those muscles, you build um, emotional muscle, you build mental muscle, and you build spiritual or character muscles in exactly the same way. So you progressively invest energy in those dynamics you want to grow. And the more stress, the more energy you, 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 know, you invest in those assets, you give them life. They actually tend to um, grow and become more robust. And so when a person enters a storm like COVID-19 and you begin to, they lose their job and they, um, you know, their whole world seems to be falling apart. Everything that they hold sacred is under siege. The, all their loved ones, they're not sure their jobs, maybe they lost their job. Now their, their mortgage is hard to make the mortgage payments. They're trying to figure out and they're very, very frightened in a sense about where this is all going to take us as a family or as a community, as a nation. So that is why we train. That is why you train in the gym physically, is when you're put under stress physically, you can manage it and emotionally and mentally. And that's why you train character so that when these storms erupt and they can come from anywhere, you actually can hold the line. It's such an interesting area of research. Our researchers have shown that only 10% of the population is, is kind of able to hold the line when they're under significant stress. Um, uh, 85% are vulnerable. They can kind of, you know, take shortcuts. They can cheat. They can, they'll do whatever they have to, particularly if survival's on the line. And 5% are, they don't even care about trying to live a moral or ethical or character driven life. So we have, you know, the moral machinery we were born with is tragically flawed. The more I got into it, the more I wondered how the heck does anyone lead 
a moral life because there are so many ways for the system to get hijacked and for us to go down a path that we never believe we could ever do ourselves. And that is why I believe the way a person trains physically and is devoted to having really the physical assets that will carry them through life, I think the same thing has to, the same mentality, training mentality, has to be developed in terms of honesty and integrity and um, all of the assets like kindness. And even though they look like they're soft, they are dynamic um, assets that, that, that are operating very much like a muscle. And if you exceed that muscle's capability or tolerance, what you see is a collapse. You're no longer patient. You're no longer kind. You're no longer grateful. You treat people very badly. Um, you, you take shortcuts in, in just about everything you're doing. And um, what that tells you is that you really don't have the strength you wanted. So when you watch a match in tennis or any other sport and you see a person bouncing back quickly from a big, big, um, you know, disappointment, when Novak Djokovic lost the first set in the finals of Wimbledon. Um, and he lost that set when he knows he should have won it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, there's no way he should have lost that first set, but he ends up losing it in a tiebreaker. And he comes roaring back and he gets five or four love in the second, which means he completely left that behind. He was able, so his mental and emotional muscle really was tested there and he came through with flying colors we make about seven to ten moral and ethical decisions whether they're conscious or unconscious every day mm. and um, we can either get stronger you make a mark on that character of yours and mine every time you interact with another person and how you connect with them and and how you speak and so forth um actually you're actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting with your private voice, your silent voice, that's also a major factor in who you are as a person. So, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting, it's complicated. We are a complex species, but all the systems affect all the other systems. So the most important area of health for me is character health. Mm -hmm. And boy, I never was there in the beginning, although my mom was not a high achiever, but she had an extraordinary character. And she always believed that she liked, she didn't graduate from college. I, they came from a fairly modest family income and she couldn't really afford to do much, but she, the way in which she treated others, she was revered and, and all the way to the end of her life, people said she was one of the most extraordinary people. She was the ultimate gift because of who she was as a person, because she truly cared about other human beings. Mm. Very cool. What are your thoughts on the phrase, sports don't build character, they reveal it? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I would say that's really true, um, with one exception. And that exception is if you have a coach who is actually using sport to build character, and that becomes the number one issue for you with everyone on the team or whatever the sport is, then sport always builds character. Um, but by itself, the research is kind of interesting that the higher you go competitively, 
particularly in team sports, the more you have, it's called bracketed morality. You hold your, um, your moral and ethical standard um, at bay because we are supposed to win here and maybe you're going to try to trip your opponent if it's soccer or clip him or, you know, maybe the team has bonused you if you can take out the quarterback and yeah. all of these, what they would be normal rules of um, moral conduct and ethical conduct, they're thrown out the window. And if you're, if you're in an environment where that is in fact kind of the, it's kind of the, the norm, maybe publicly or covertly, um, it has an effect on you. And then at some point in your life, when you're in the real world of business or anything else, you remember what that coach, how he recommended that you kind of make sure you win at all costs. And now you're a, in a brokerage firm or you're, you're doing, you're managing money. And sure. so, and I've seen this countless times and I have been reviewing all the research for a very long time. And it, uh, you know, we do kids a very big disservice when we teach them that you can win and winning is the ultimate goal of sport, as opposed to the ultimate goal of sport is to grow up and become a better person, being able to handle sports, make mistakes, get more resilient. And uh, so that this is practice for what you're going to face in the real world. Let's build your character now. And maybe you can withstand the unbelievable pressure you're going to be under when the real world hits. This is a game, make no mistake about it, even though there's a lot of pressure to succeed. But it, it just is, it shrinks by comparison to the real world that you're going to face when you are uh, under serious financial strain, you've lost your job, one of your family members is has a debilitating you know, injury or disease and the medicine is like off the charts expensive and you can't afford it, all of a sudden you're going to be facing issues you never thought perhaps you ever would. And if you'd been training, hopefully you're going to get through it and you'll be a leader for everyone who's watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot too, Dr. Jim, I think a lot of the character development stuff starts at a very early age and we're shaped a lot from our coaches and from our parents. So if we were to kind of flip that idea, what uh, what types of advice would you give to coaches and parents listening who are trying to, you know, stow upon their kids better development and 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 trying to raise a kid with, you know, um positive leadership and good character? How can coaches and parents do a better job? Because honestly, I think that's where it starts is with them. Another great issue. Um, first of all, whether you're a parent or whether you're a coach or both, mm -hmm. get the scorecard right. Let your son or daughter know what is the scorecard that actually matters for you and then walk your talk. I'm more interested in who you're becoming as a person, as a baseball player, as um, a football player, as a tennis player, golfer. I, I'm more concerned about that. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not asking you to win. I hope you're going to want to win. That's pretty normal. 
I want to know how you handle defeat. I want to know how you deal with setbacks. I want to know how you um, have, you know, treated others in the process, others that are not as good as you were. Are you, do you have an arrogance about you just because you're a great tennis player? You feel like you're king of the mountain? Trust me, you're not. Um, you are, uh, you're a human being that maybe has developed a lot of skill in a particular sport, but that gives you no special inside privileges as far as I'm concerned, other than you've been, it's a gift. And why don't you leverage this gift to become a better person and to be an inspiration to others that this is what's possible if you work hard. So, um, it's so important we don't just fall into the trap of using uh, ESPN's scorecard, mm. that winning is the only thing that actually counts. And if you don't, you're a loser. And parents have to work like crazy and coaches to overcome that, um, yeah, that stereotypical thinking. And, but the great coaches who really get it, you're never going to forget them. For the rest of your life, you'll always remember that this was the person who had the greatest impact on you and taught you how to win, but how to win in the right way. How to win, first of all, on the hidden scorecard, and the rest of it will come very naturally. You work hard, you have a great attitude, and you always understand what the ultimate measure of success truly is. And maybe even take kids to the end. I do this as young as nine or 10, take them to the end of their life. And if they're an aspiring superstar, I really want to know at the end, what, what do you want on that? And none of them say, well, I, I won 12 gold medals. I mean, you know, it's just, they don't care about that. And so sometimes we just need to have someone give us perspective. Perspective in life is everything. So many parents were brought up with the notion that their success as a parent is determined by how much success, how much their kids make in terms of money, yeah. how far did they go competitive, they did, did they go further than I did? If I am able to show that my children succeeded um, in a, on a playing field that exceeded what I did, that means I was a success. Then that's what you know, this conditioning has done to so many parents that they believe that's it because they look across the street and they see Sally over there has become number one in the state and she's going to get to go on the Olympic junior team. And they look at themselves and go, we must be failures as parents because they didn't get that because our kids didn't do it. But, and there again, it's the purpose for why you're doing it. I am such a firm believer. I have seven grandchildren and three children, and they all play competitive. And I'm always pushing them to play sports. I think sports are the most incredibly important part of developing as early as possible mm -hmm. with the right goal and end in mind. Um, and one other thing I would say to parents and even coaches, but it was a big, uh, big insight that we learned at the Institute. And that was that this private voice, the voice that no one else hears but you, 
and it'll be the only voice with you until your death. That is the power broker in your life. And that's what everyone wants to have access to. Mm -hmm. It's not your public voice, but it's the voice inside that's running the show. It's the master storyteller. It is the, it is the power broker in your life. So if you have a wildly dysfunctional private voice, there's going to be a lot of chaos. And I've had to fix those crazy wild voices. And we always wondered where they came from. And we learned that even um, in the youngest years, the way in which authority figures, parents, even sometimes siblings speak to them, the brain is always listening. And those are recorded and uh, they begin to ferment. And one day you wake up and you are an amalgamation in a sense of all the voices that right. have been, you know, in and out. Yeah. you know, kind of giving you all these messages. And a lot of those messages are terribly dysfunctional. So you find yourself going, God, I'm such an idiot. You're so stupid. What's the matter with you? And then you think back and, you know, maybe you had a parent that was brutal. How, how can you do that? It was the dumbest thing. Why are we spending all this money on all these lessons and taking you around all over and transporting you? And this is what I get. If I'd had your opportunities as a young, mm -hmm. you know, adolescent, I would have been a superstar. Right. I'm giving you everything. And you, you can't even get out of the first pew to make it happen. What's the matter with you? You're an idiot. And all of a sudden, you realize that a lot, a lot of this languaging uh, that you have between your ears actually is um, something you had no control over because you weren't even aware of it. Now, now you're beginning to realize that you're fighting two battles, one inside your head and one with your competitor on the outside. So I spent a lot of time trying to help those to get your public and private voice aligned with what I call your best self. You will coach yourself, which is your ultimate coach is your private voice. Um, it's the most important coach you will ever have in your lifetime. Right. To get those aligned with what you might refer to as your best self, the person you're most proud of. And then if all of that private voice language was put on a jumbotron, for everyone to see, you would be proud because it's the best you had to give to yourself. Mm. And that, uh, that takes a lot of hard work, a lot of heavy lifting. But um, um, as parents, if they begin to realize that every time they speak to their child, no matter how young, in whatever way, they are setting the stage for how one day they will be coaching themselves. Mm -hmm. So it, it's like when parents get that, they stop on a dime because they realize that's not how I want my son or daughter coaching themselves. So you change the tone, you change the messaging, and the message should be if you were coaching someone that you deeply cared about, who was in the same situation you are, what would you say to them if you were coaching someone else? That's how I want you to speak to yourself. And parents need to be fully aware that they are conditioning every single day the most important voice that will ever be in that child's head. And that is the way you're speaking to them is the way they will speak to themselves.
Yeah. That's so better or worse. Right. So powerful. And you wrote a, you wrote a book on it. That's a magnificent book. I have it in my bookshelf, the power of story, change your story, change Mm. your destiny in business and in life. And, and, and I, this stuff rings so true to me. Do you have a Dr. Jim, do you have a example or a story about a story, I guess, where either for positive or for negative, one of your athletes was able to use uh, the story in their mind to either boost themselves in a high performing situation, or maybe they had negative self-talk or negative connotations in their mind and it went the opposite way. Do you have a story that we could uh, hear? I have hundreds of them. <laughs> <laughs> pick, pick your favorite. Well, um, and Dan Jansen knows, you know, because he, he's talked publicly, we've been on stage together and, you know, his story was an amazing story. Um, and I'm sure most everyone is familiar with the Dan Jansen story that could have ended up in really the, the heartbreak kid, so to speak, because in Calgary, he was slated to become the greatest 500 meter speed skater in the history of the sport and to win a gold medal. I mean, everyone assumed this was going to happen because he was breaking records and nobody could come close. And on the day of his, of his race in Calgary, three hours before his race, he got a call from his sister, or from really one of the family members, and said that his sister Jane, who he was closest to in all the world, had died of leukemia. Mm-hmm. And had he known that she was in critical condition, he would have left and never skated. So he was just absolutely completely devastated at the most important time in his Olympic career. And he thought about just jumping on a plane and going back. And his father said, what do you think Jane would want you to do? Come back for the funeral or to finish what you set out to do? And he thought about it and said, no, I'm sure she would want me to skate. And so the father said, well, why don't you do that? Let's finish this. Well, he tried to put his skates on. He was in tears. He's absolutely a mess. And he never falls, but out just literally just out of the blocks, he falls hopelessly to the ice and doesn't even come close to anything. And then the 1,000 meter, which he was never noted for, um, was four days later, and he actually devoted this race to her. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And he was actually the front runner all the way through the race until the very end. And out of nowhere, not there was no turn or anything else. He just suddenly falls to the ice and gets nothing. So the story of Dan Johnson begins um, as an Olympian. And every time he went anywhere, everyone would say, have you forgotten the death of your sister? Are you going to fall again? Um, And his... uh, his agent came to me and said, listen, we have two years left. And uh, if nothing happens, he'll go down as maybe the greatest choker in sports history. He's by far the most talented. He's a wonderful human being. I'm asking if you would try to help us uh, help him fulfill his destiny. So for two years, um, just at the beginning of that, he went to Albertville and um, he had a slip in the 500, which took him out of the medal um, 
possibilities. And then he came in 26 in the 1000. It was a complete catastrophe. So for the next two years, we tried to change his story. He tried to really change how he thought about it and how much speed skating had been a gift to him and how, how, um, you know, he, he actually, no matter what happens, if he fails in his final Olympic quest in Lillehammer, he's going to be fine, but he's going to skate with joy and whatever happens, this has been an ultimate gift for him and he's going to give it everything. And, um, uh, I really wanted him. I asked him, what did he really want in this story? What would he like to be, uh, left behind in terms of what he did. He said, I'd like to break the 36 second barrier, which is in, in the 500 meter, the line that virtually everyone thought it was like the four minute mile, it'll never be broken. It's like beyond human capabilities. So I said, Dan, I have all of his training logs for two years and we monitor like 22 variables every single day. And at the top of the training log, he put 35.99. And he would read that every day and imagine mm -hmm. him breaking the 36 second barrier. And then he'd also write, I love the 1000. He says, when I first told him that, he says, I don't love the 1000. I hate the 1000. <laughs> the only reason I skate it is as a training, but I'm not, I'm a, I'm a sprinter. I'm not a long distance skater. So it's just not something I want to do. And I don't like it. And I said, Dan, we're going to change that. I believe you have greatness. I want you to change your story. You have the possibility, you have the genius to be a world record Olympic champion in the thousand meter race. So he thought it was a little loony, but <laughs> he went ahead and did it. He broke the 36 second barrier four times before Lillehammer. Wow. He broke it once at 35.76, which is so unimaginable. Wow. Um, and before Lillehammer, he said, you know, I have to tell you, Jim, that I think I love the 500 more than the 1,000. <laughs> he completely changed his story, his inner voice, the whole thing. And, and in Calgary, he had one small slip, which took him out of the um, metal possibility. And it was okay. I mean, he went, uh, and I was actually, I flew to Lillehammer. And I didn't normally go to his races, so I didn't want him to know that I was in the audience because I thought it might add a little more pressure. So, but I wanted to be there in the event he didn't really succeed in the 500. We, we have four days to prepare for the 1,000. And so, and I didn't have any security. I didn't have anything. And when he didn't succeed in the 500, I tried to get to Dan. I had to fight through security guards. I was screaming and yelling. Dan saw me and he says, let him through. So for the next four days, we prepared and he actually had worked so hard on the thousand. And in that final race, the final race of his life, his most important goal is to simply show how grateful he was for all the gifts that this sport of speed skating mm. had given him and that uh, he was going to skate with joy. And uh, he, uh, he broke all, I mean, there were, there were seven people that had faster times than he had ever had, including Kevin Scott, who was the world record holder. 
and um, he broke an Olympic record and won an Olympic gold medal in the same event. Oh, man. In the same event that he had come in 26th two years earlier. Wow. So it does give you a sense of how powerful one's story can be. And, um, you know, he skated with great joy. And um, he changed his destiny. And that's how powerful stories are. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book on the power of story. Change your story, change your destiny. And that's exactly what it is. And the most important story we'll ever tell is the story we tell to ourselves. Gosh, that's incredible, man. That's a, that's an amazing story. And I'm thinking about the people that I think there's a lot of people out there, Dr. Jim, who are very harsh to themselves and they have a voice in their head that they would be embarrassed if other people heard it. And I love that you said, if you know, you put it on the Megatron and everybody can hear it. Are you proud of the things that you're telling yourself? I think that's just so important for people to take away and start to realize, first of all, I think you need to start being aware, being aware of what are the words that you're telling yourself when good things are happening, but more importantly, when bad things are happening. And then, like you said, is this something that you would teach to another or say to another coach, uh, uh, your, your parents, your mom, if you're coaching your mom, would you say these things? Um, Very profound stuff. Yeah, it's so interesting. We, we spent uh, many, many years trying to understand what is the best way to, to change that inner voice. And you're right. The first step is awareness. You've got to become aware that this is going on. A lot of people just, they're not even, they, and they, a lot of athletes felt it was just like moving air yes, yes. around inside your head. It doesn't really make a difference. And sometimes it seems to take the pressure off. You're such a loser. You're going to lose here anyway. So just suck it up then they maybe they take the pressure off and they perform a little better and they, well that's what i got to do i got to beat the hell out of myself before i can get there i don't really deserve um you know to to be kind to myself because i'll just become a jerk if i'm not really brutal like my dad was on me mm. so we learned the best way to, to actually change that voice was with your hand through writing cursive mm. writing not typing but cursive writing. And what we did is we actually had people, and you'll see it in the, in the journal associated with uh, leading with character, the, my most recent book, you actually are coaching yourself with your hand and you're coaching yourself how to think when you're in that situation and how to coach yourself when those come up in life. And so you're really training your inner coach, which is really the ultimate coach. And you're doing it with your hand. And it's so interesting that moving the fingers of your hand and this executive function, this prefrontal cortex, we found that it's, it's more powerful in changing that voice than actually visualization or all the other forms of mental training that we could do. It is a, it's a very powerful tool. So, And just about everybody has an inner voice that needs little work some mm-hmm. need a lot of work right and uh oh it's just to me it's so encouraging once we have a system where we actually can correct that's why i believe journaling is such a big deal if you have a journal every day you journal but you don't put in the crappy stuff you don't put in the stuff that's really toxic and all the whining and complaining it never ends up in your journal 
What ends up in your journal is only the very best coaching to yourself that you ever could give. And um, if you pass, and we've had people pass and they left behind that journal, the journal is the most incredible look into that positive voice that they were feeding to themselves and, and coaching themselves. It's a priceless gift. It was a priceless gift for them and for all those that now come behind. Mm -hmm. So never believe the voice is, um, you know, the voice you're going to die with. If you don't like it, you can change it. But I will tell you, rewiring this brain, this magnificent neural processor between your ears is not easy. It's a lot of hard work. But if you're destined, to, you know, in your mind to raise the bar and to actually find a little more happiness in terms of, first of all, how you coach yourself and how you coach others, either as an athletic coach or as a parent, you're always coaching. And what you're coaching is the private voice. You're not just trying to influence their public voice. Mm. You're trying to get inside to that private voice, which is, the th which is the voice that directs all the traffic in one's life. So um, it, to me, it's such a fascinating journey that I've been on. And I feel like if there's any way I can share and get people who are uh, really in a position to make a big difference uh, long before I ever did, because um, I never understood a lot of these things, maybe we can, uh, we can change the trajectory of a lot of people's lives and a lot of their children. Mm -hmm. As I'm flipping through, so we have the book here, the, the Personal Credo Journal. Uh, I have some questions that I want to get on. I, ju I just bought a couple days ago and I've been flipping through and it. Just some of the questions, they seem almost very like therapeutic in a sense of like, you know, it's it's very much you're working on yourself, self-development type stuff. But and before we get to the questions, can can we talk a little bit about the personal credo? It's got kind of a flow to it. I really like I really like the terminology. What Why is it a personal credo and, and how did you come up with the terminology? So in the corporate world, every major corporation has an organizational credo. And what that organizational credo, if they actually live it, like Johnson & Johnson's mm -hmm. credo, this is kind of the, the marching orders. This is how they're going to operate between the competitive lines that they're in. It's like, this is who we really aspire to be even though we're in a very competitive and dog-eat-dog -dog world of competition. So every organization has them. Some are much more vigilant in training that, um, making sure that everyone is operating through that lens, how you treat others, the prioritization of um, money or shareholder value or employee, the treatment of employees, all of these issues which are moral issues. It's really speaking to the morality of how they're conducting themselves in this pursuit of financial gain. But nowhere in the literature is the, is, is the same kind of operating statement on an individual level. Mm. So rather than talking about it organizationally, I'm talking about it as a personal credo. And I had a lot of, really interesting opportunities to work with world-class leaders. We piloted this program that you're starting to read about for 10 years, and we modified it and modified it and modified it based on all the feedback we got. But 
one of the things, and you can even think about it in your own life, when you make a moral and ethical decision, what are you referencing? What, what are you really, what are you wrapping your arms around to say, this is, yeah, I should do this or I shouldn't? Do you have something that actually, you know, exactly what it is, or it's just kind of like formulated in the moment to go, no, I should do that. Where did it come from? And when asked almost all world leaders that we had and serious influencers said they really don't know where it came from. <laughs> uh, it came from parents. Parents sometimes get it wrong, often get it wrong. Prejudices and all kinds of biases and everything else. Sometimes it comes from religious teachings and sometimes religion gets it really wild and crazy. It comes from your culture or the gang that you were born up in. You know, gangs have a culture that may have had a lot of really unfortunate influences on your character, maybe even sororities or fraternities. There's so many influences on that. And so I said, well, what if we decide not to just leave it to chance, that whatever you ended up with is what you're going to end up using for the rest of your life? Let's create the document intentionally. Yeah. Let's go in and look at why you're here. What is your purpose? What are the values that really you hold most dear? What do you respect most about other people when they make decisions? So this is a lot of tough work. It's 150 days, 10 minutes a day with your hand. And it really is a, so it's a, it's, it's not for the faint of heart because it pushes you way outside your comfort zone. And at the end of that first 90 days, you'll end up with a document, a document that will become yours. And it will be the, the lens through which you vet every moral decision that you're going to make until that document is altered in some way. It becomes your personal constitution. And you actually use that for making really the tough decisions. And, um, and then you do another 60 days to... Uh, Really, to, so that it's not something that you have to reference by looking it up, but you're actually, it's now embedded in that neural processor between your ears. Now you actually think in these terms. And for the rest of your life, you're going to be modifying and increasing the depth and, and really a comprehensiveness of this personal credo until your last day. Mm -hmm. And so it's not something that was given to you. It's something you created out of the fabric of your life, and there can be no two the same because this is your life, and you're going to decide how you want to walk through this very, very sometimes treacherous moral and ethical territory to get what I call to get home. Getting home morally and ethically is to end up at the end of your life where you want to end up, and it's not going to be by accident. You're going to do it with intentionality and full engagement. This is your document. This is how you're going to operate. And your public voice and your private voice are going to be fully aligned with that document. Right. And that's what brings a sense of fulfillment and a sense that, hey, you know, this is, this is where I should be. And I will get home if I follow this. It's incredibly powerful. And, you know, the personal credo journal, it's, it's full of amazing questions. I've been just kind of flipping through it. And I know this is probably similar to asking, you know, something like, who's your favorite kid? But if you were to, for the listeners who don't have the book yet, what, 
Dr. Jim, what one or two questions or pages really stick out to you when you're talking about this journal? What are some questions that you like to shed upon people that are listening that maybe they could think about as they're driving in their car right now? So two of the most powerful exercises uh, that are in the book, in the in their main book and certainly in the journal, we really had the greatest success taking people to the end of their life. Most people don't like to go there. It's like not comfortable. But if you want to know where you're supposed to end up, if you're in your car and you want to navigate somewhere, the first thing you have to put into your nav system is where do you want to go? Where do you want to end up? And if you're not clear, you have no chance of getting there. So we're going to call that home. So we need to know what getting home, what is the coordinate as precisely as possible for getting home. And uh, so the two questions that, I mean, there are several in, in the journal that yeah. get you there, but there's a couple. One is, I want you to write down the six or eight words that describe who you are when you're most proud of yourself, when you're truly the best version of yourself that you can possibly be, when you light up and go, this is who I should be, particularly under stress. So, you know, you just list whatever those words are. They're one or two words, and you write six or, six or eight of them down. Mm -hmm. And when we did that, and then we had people share their words, they were stunned at how similar people are when they really are at their best. Patient, mm -hmm. kind, caring, engaged, respectful. I mean, it's just it's almost like everybody copied off of everyone. <laughs> And then, at, then we asked them to go to the end of their life and to create their own eulogy. How do they want people to think about them when they're gone? And to put the eight words or six words on their tombstone that most accurately reflect who they most want to be if that were real. What would they like to be? What, what is the trace they want to leave behind for others, which becomes their legacy? So they write down these words and um, that's getting home. It's getting home. And what was striking for so many was that who they are at their best when they're most proud and who they are and who they want to be at the end of their life. There's a huge connection there. Mm. And almost all of it, nobody put on their tombstone for Olympic medals. No, you know, it's just like it falls off, but that's, so how much energy are you devoting to scaling, becoming the CEO or becoming a superstar athlete compared to what's really going to matter? And that is a person of integrity or kindness or compassion who truly cares about this a great mother or a great father, a great son, a great daughter. Where is your energy going? And to the extent that your energy is actually going toward what you believe is the most important part of your life, a peace comes, a sense of fulfillment comes, because that's why I'm here. That's the purpose of my life. And I, it's not something that someone else gave to me. I actually have come to this. There are a lot of things I can't control that I had no control over being born, when, where, what country, my hair color, my eye color, my beauty, whatever, my intelligence, my sports assets. 
I don't have control over it, but I do have control over what the purpose of my life is. I can devote it to whatever I want. So finally, I can exercise some control over that. And then I have got to take action. It's just like once you know where home is on your nav system and you figure out where you are now, then you've got to have some energy invested to close the gap. So you keep working on those assets so that I become kinder. I become uh, more honest, more um, more engaged with my family and the people I care most about as opposed to being multitasking all the time going a thousand miles an hour. So uh, I, I like to start with, in a sense, what Covey would say, the end in mind. Right. And for us, that was a very important part of helping people become extraordinary navigators with their energy. Mm. And how true is it too, that this isn't easy stuff, Dr. Jim, this is something that needs to be practiced. And like you said, it's like right. a muscle. And I think a lot of my listeners can relate to that in fitness that you get, you're pumping iron, you're trying to grow, you're doing that every single day. That's what this stuff is. And, and if journaling is the way for you, it could be a great way to just practice daily. And you do a great job with the, uh, you know, 10 minutes, even 10 minutes a day to become, to me, it's to become more aligned. I think the, the thing I gravitate towards a lot is aligning that inner voice with your public voice. The more those two can get aligned together, the more purpose you have in your life. And honestly, the more happy and fulfilled you are. Well, that's it. Most people never think about aligning yeah. their private and public voice with their sense of purpose in life. And the more that alignment comes, there's just a sense of peace and a. it's hard to describe it people start experiencing it and they go, you know, how come I haven't been doing this my whole life? Or, mm -hmm. How did I miss this? And I go, well, don't feel bad. I missed it too. <laughs> and this was supposedly the area that I was trained in. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Jim Lay, I appreciate you taking the time. This is a fun hour. I feel like with all your books and wisdom and insight, I could talk to you for a long time, uh, but I want to re be respectful of your time. So for the listeners out there that uh, want to see and learn more from you, what's the best way? How can I point them into your direction? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have, I'm, uh, have a website, uh, Jim, uh, dash lair, uh, dot com. Uh, that's my website. It's L O E H R and I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, yeah, I'm always, I, I love to hear what people have to say when they go through the training, the leading with character and the journaling love to get feedback. Um, I I'm a, I'm a continuous learner. I'm always trying to find new ways to do things better. So, I'm a work in progress and the feedback I get really helps me to understand, you know, some of these nuances that are not as obvious, but when you go through it, you'll start coming up with ideas and thoughts and I'd love to hear from you. So thank you. And the book leading with character and the personal credo is out right now. Get those Amazon online. I got mine at Barnes and Noble, but if you have a certain place where you like people to buy them, no, I mean, uh, you, anywhere, I think probably the easiest for most people is Amazon, but if you can get it Barnes and Noble, wherever, I really, um, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, get feedback. I love feedback. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks for taking the time, guys. If you enjoy the show, I would love to hear the feedback too. Put it on your Instagram story. Send me an email. I'd love to hear what you got out of the show. And we'll see you guys next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. Take care. Have a great week.